Please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 40. I'll give the same uh, announcement I gave last week. I will not read the entire portion of Job 40 and 41. Uh, We will go through different parts of it. I can tell you right now we're going to read verses 6 through 16 and then pick up in the first five verses of 41 and then close with the last four verses of 41 as well. Job chapter 40, starting in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. And jump down to 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given first to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then jump down finally to verse 31. He that is Leviathan makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behold him, behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would not think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this book, for this passage. It reminds us and holds out before us that you are the great and powerful God. There is none like you. God, as we come to your word, may you humble us. May you remind us that you control all things, that you are working all things according to the good counsel of your will. May that give us strength. May that give us hope. Even in a day where it seems like weakness is everywhere and hopelessness is everywhere as well. May we learn from you, even in this passage, by your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.
You may be seated. I'm sure that many of you have read or seen or are familiar with C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That book is the most well-known of all the books in that famous series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And even now, as I sit here with a three-year-old and a two-year-old, I'm excited for the day when I can read those books to my children, and they will appreciate them and enjoy them um, for the great works that they are. I am not sure, however, how many of you are familiar with the first book, The Magician's Nephew. It tells the story of how Narnia came to be. None of the familiar faces that you know from the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, are there save two. The professor, the the famous owner of the wardrobe, and Aslan himself, the wild, powerful, good lion who rules over Narnia. And while his rule and his reign and his greatness are certainly seen in that second book, they are firmly established in the first book, The Magician's Nephew. To spare you any unnecessary detail, the creation of Narnia unfolds like this. It starts with Aslan singing into the darkness. You don't see him, but you hear him. And the sound is described as beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise, so beautiful one could hardly bear it. And as his voice continues to sing, other voices are added to it. And then light is formed and things become visible. The mountains, the rivers, the vibrant colors. And then finally off in the distance, the great lion, Aslan himself, is seen. And as he continues pacing to and fro about the earth, that empty land, singing his new song, the rest of Narnia is created. Grass and trees begin to sprout out from the ground. Flowers begin to fill over the rolling hills and the open plains. And then in this, this mysterious way that the ground starts to bubble and fill with these, these mounds of dirt. And out of these mounds burst forth the animals themselves. The elephants, the beavers, the, lion, the, the leopards, and the other creatures. And then Aslan goes and seeks out two of each of these animals. And he touches them with his nose, almost to signal them out, to call them to himself. And each responds by leaving their kind and joining this circle that's been surrounding Aslan. And then finally, once the circle is complete, once he has two of every kind of animals, Aslan opens his mouth, fire falls from the sky, and in the deepest and wildest voice ever heard, he says, Narnia, Narnia, Narnia. Awake, love, think. Speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. It is truly a powerful scene, and I thoroughly enjoyed it as I reread it over this past week. It firmly establishes Aslan as the great and powerful ruler over all of Narnia. And as we have been going through the book of Job, namely last week's speeches in 38 and 39, and today's speeches in 40 and 41, I hope that in these last four chapters, we are hearing a similar but even more powerful song being sung. The Lord himself has made it abundantly clear to Job that he is sovereign, that he is infinitely wise, and as we're going to see this morning, that he is great in power. There is none like the Lord, 
As the psalm listed in the top of your bulletin says, His greatness is unsearchable. We cannot exhaust it. There is none who can rival His power. There is none that can compare with His greatness. Even all the evil and the chaos of this universe submits to His every command. We see in this speech to Job, this final speech, that God alone holds the power over all of his creatures, over all of his creation. And now before we dive into the text itself, some of you may be wondering, what do we exactly do with these two beasts? These special creatures, this behemoth and this leviathan. Unfortunately, there are no short explanations or even an overwhelming consensus as to what these two beasts are. A simple reading takes each as an actual creature. Behemoth sounds a bit like a hippopotamus in a lot of ways, and Leviathan a bit like a crocodile. And when I had the privilege of being in Africa in college, I got to witness both of these animals in the wild. They are intimidating, they are strong, and they are uncontrollable. Hippos are extremely territorial. As we were in the jeeps driving around, we were warned, make sure we are never between the hippo and the water which there was one time where we stopped and I looked to my left and there was a hippo and to my right was the water and I nudged to the driver, let's pull up just a little bit because hippo's looking at me like I'm a blocking his water. And we know also from crocodiles, they may be even scarier. They just look nasty. The one that we had the privilege of seeing had its head as long as I am tall. And I know I'm not a tall individual, but that's still five foot seven feet of a head. And it convinced our boat captain to move the boat to a new position to observe the animals. A hippo and a crocodile would certainly highlight the puny power of man. Some, however, though, see there's a little bit more to these creatures. Because the truth of the matter is, hippos and crocodiles, while powerful and intimidating, they have been hunted and killed and defeated by man. Therefore, some want to take them as a little bit more mythical. Some think that Behemoth is a unicorn, or that Leviathan is a dragon, which, in their defense, he does sound a little bit smog-like in the descriptions that are given in verses 12 through 34. But still others kind of take a both-and approach to these creatures. They are actual physical creatures. The Lord made both of them. Job is likely familiar with them. But they also represent something more. As one scholar writes, they are symbols of all the chaos that are totally beyond human control. I think this argument is probably the most convincing. These beasts provide Job with a tangible picture of of power and of strength. But they also point to greater things beyond those. Bigger forces at work that man in all his strength and power is incapable of controlling. But for the sake of our time this morning, we're not going to get too bogged down by these two creatures. We're actually going to spend most of our time in verses 8 through 14. Those verses kind of serve as a preface for why the Lord describes Behemoth and Leviathan. In a way, before staring down these two monsters, Job is first told to stare down and contemplate the majesty and the power of God Almighty. 
For he is the one who made these powerful beasts. He is the one alone who can control them. And he is the one who makes them and the, rep- the chaotic forces that they may represent serve his purposes, whatever they may be. And the outline for our time this morning is three points. They're not in the bulletin, but I'll give them for you here. The first is that we see the power of God and that only he can rule justly. Then we'll see that only God can restrain evil and that only God can redeem sinners. I'll provide them one more time. Only God can rule justly. Only God can restrain evil. And only God can redeem sinners. First, we see that only God can rule justly. God alone has the power and the ability to administer true justice in his creation. And this was one of Job's chief complaints. While not denying God's justice, he did challenge its outworking. In particular, in his life and the life of the people around him and those he knew and he witnessed. If you were to flip back into Job 19 in verses 6 through 7, he tells his friends, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Job perceives this lack of justice as a sign that God is his enemy. And this is why God starts his second discourse then with a different question than those in chapters 38 and 39. He comes right at Job and says, will even you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Another translation puts it this way, will you really nullify my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Whether Job realized it or not, all of his attempts to vindicate himself have implicated God of wrongdoing, of failing to uphold justice. He's taken issue with God's ability to make right judgments. And so in grace and in love, just like he came in 38, he comes and hits Job with a challenge. He skips the questions and goes right for a command. He tells Job if this is how he feels, then he needs to dress the part. If Job is going to ultimately contend that he can do a better job at reigning, at bringing about justice, then he needs to be ready. Listen to how God challenges him in verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. These attributes flow right out of the Psalms. Some were included even in our call to worship this morning. They're not random things that sound nice when they get put together. They're kingly attributes. They point to the uniqueness of God. They emphasize his power and his greatness over all of creation. If Job is unable to take on such royal and powerful characteristics, how is he ever going to dream of doing a better job at administering justice on earth? This is the weight of the Lord's commands here in verse 10. And Job knows he can't do that. He can't put glory and majesty upon himself. The truth is, he can't even rule over behemoth and leviathan. There is no way that he could say, come here, boy, and they'd quickly follow his lead. If anything, they'd charge him, trample him, maybe even eat him. 
Job is impotent. But not finished, God gives him some more commands. He tells him to punish the wicked, to remove them altogether from the face of the earth. Listen to what he says in 13. Speaking about the wicked, hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. The challenge laid here is Job. If you think you can do a better job at administering justice, go ahead and bury the wicked. Do it now. Such a thing is the dream of many. At various times, all of us have likely wished that we could administer this kind of judgment, this kind of justice. Whether it's because we have seen something in this world that has fallen and wicked, a specific wrong that has been committed against us or against one of those we know and love, or even those we don't even know. Or maybe it's just been one of those days where it's really hard to manage people, kids, employees, anyone we meet on the street. Each of us would gladly do our part to ensure that people who violate, people who commit injustice would get what's coming to them. But the Lord isn't just kind of egging Job on. He's, he's honestly telling him, go ahead and do it. Get rid of all these workers of evil and injustice and suffering. For any Marvel fans, Job is, Job is being challenged to kind of snap his fingers like Thanos and get rid of everything he sees that is wicked and evil in this world. And again, Job knows he's powerless. He cannot do this. He cannot even best these two beasts with bones of iron, tails like tree trunks, skin like armor, and breath like fire. And he would be a fool to even try to do it. God alone is the God who can and does rule with complete and perfect justice. Even when it doesn't seem like it to us. I believe this is a timely reminder for us today. Because last year and even this early year have heard many cries for justice. And the response to many seems to be in one of two extremes. On the one hand, there's those who may take God's word to Job a little bit too far. Since we can't do it, why, not even, why, not, why try? And so we just turn a blind eye to the evil and the injustices that go on around us. And this is wrong. Scripture tells us and teaches us that we are to pursue true righteousness, justice, and peace as disciples of Jesus Christ. But the other extreme is for many is to jump on board with the culture and think that true justice will come through human efforts, through human power. Sadly, this turns our attention away from God who only brings true justice. It places hope in fallen individuals, in fallen systems to bring about only what God can. We can and certainly will struggle and should wrestle when we see the wicked prospering, whether they be individuals or groups. And it is and it will be a tough pill to swallow when we do not see justice being done as we would like to or we might hope to see. But we would be wise to remember that in our finite minds we typically play the short game. We want immediate judgment and immediate retribution. But thanks be to God that he is far more patient. He is long-suffering, as we confessed earlier. 
Sometimes his judgment is immediate. Other times it is prolonged. But his plans are not our plans. And his plan will ultimately end in perfect and final justice, righteousness, and peace. So we are invited to cry out like Job when we see evil and sin and suffering. But we're also called like Job to remain humble. Let us not be tempted to think that we can do a better job. But may we trust in God and in his power to rule justly. As I frequently had to remind my girls that daddy does in fact know what he is doing. We all need the same reminder from our heavenly father. God knows what he is doing. He has the power. He's clothed in all he needs to be clothed in to bring about and to rule justly. But we also see that not only can God bring rule justly, he can also restrain evil. We see this in verses 11 through 12. God alone has the power and the authority to use evil, to restrain evil, even for his own purposes. We saw this all the way back in Job chapters 1 and 2. The accuser is given permission to wreak havoc upon Job. But he's limited in how far he can go. The first time he tells him not to touch Job. The second time to spare his life. Now Job is completely unaware of this arrangement. And so he struggles, as we do, over how this type of evil can be allowed. How can those who committed, like the invaders who has ruined his life, go about uncontested? And Job offers a complaint. In Job chapter 21, he says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. The only thing Job sees in his world is the evil winning. It's going unchecked. Everything seems the exact opposite of what Job's friends were so staunchly defending. Righteousness brings blessing. Sin leads to suffering. And if we're honest, there's times where we feel like Job. It feels as though evil has a free reign over everything. Take this week, for example. Whatever your personal feelings about the specific issues, what took place in our nation's capital was evil. The looting, the destruction, and the violence were wrong. They provided a tangible picture of just some, just some of the increasing evil in our country alone. But scan out further beyond our borders and the picture is no better. Evil and violence are everywhere. I don't know if you saw, but in this past week, China reported on their efforts to sterilize women and to terminate children under the banner of progress and truth, um, progress and health. The details are horrific. It should lead to universal outrage, regardless of political, religious, personal convictions. The blatant violations against human rights are too many to count. And then you throw on top of that the reports coming from our brothers and sisters around the globe, where Christ and his church are suffering or being murdered or being executed. It certainly feels like evil has its hand on the reins. 
And to such thinking, God challenges Job and us. He says, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Again, the Lord challenges Job to do what he can't. It sounds similar to verse 13, but it's a little bit different. It's not quite as extreme. Job is not being challenged to punish, but to push back, to restrain the evil. Maybe Job thinks if he can get angry enough, it will stop. Future thieves and robbers will leave his stuff alone. Maybe if he makes some compelling speeches, he will convince those who seek violence and destruction to think twice about it. Or maybe if he pulls all of his resources together, what he has left, he can find enough strength to just maybe make a few of those folks accountable for what they've done. And while noble, Job knows that none of these things will do. Evil will press on despite Job's best efforts. He's powerless to restrain it. And just in case Job might be tempted to think otherwise, God points to the two massive and powerful beasts. He says, look at Behemoth. He frolics and laughs in the swelling river waters. The rushing and raging waters, they're no problem for him. He swims in it like he's in his kiddie pool. Leviathan, he turns weapons of war into straw, into sticks. When he swims, the water foams and rages. If Job has no hope of restraining these two powerful creatures, where's he going to find the hope and the strength to restrain evil? Job can't even end his own suffering and his misery. He can't restore his health, bring back his wealth, or his family. This will be proven when all those things happen by the Lord's mighty hand. And here again in lies the truth for Job and for us. The thing that God challenges Job to do are the very th same things that he does according to his good purposes. He's the one who pours out his anger. He's the one who can tread down the wicked. He's the one who can oppose the proud. Scripture provides us with innumerable examples of such power. God, God crushed his own people by raising Assyria, who was then crushed by Babylon, who was then crushed by Persia, and it goes on and on. It was God who overthrew kings. He pushed back against the evil of his own people. But possibly most comforting to Job and to us is the precious truth revealed in such places like Genesis 50 where Joseph reveals to his brothers how God is not only powerful enough to be sovereignly over all the evil, not only to restrain it, but to use it for good. Job tells his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many should be kept alive. Like Job, you and I cannot restrain evil. We lack the power, the strength, and like Job, we rarely know why to the many questions we have regarding evil and suffering. But our God does know. And he has the power to restrain evil. 
and to use it for his purposes, which includes sometimes our own growth and our own good. So let us find comfort even in our weakness. God is strong. Evil is not his match. And in case we doubt, we need not look anywhere but the cross of Christ. In the vilest display of evil and human pride, the perfect Son of God was beaten and hung on a tree. Evil's unrestrained hour, if you will, had come. But as we know, God used such wickedness, rebellion and evil, to secure the salvation of his people. He took what was meant for evil and brought about the greatest good through it, our salvation. We see that only God can restrain evil even use it for his good. And then finally, we see that only God can redeem sinners. The Lord alone has the power to save. This message is the message that is found explicitly in places like Psalm 3 and Jonah 2, where it is proclaimed that salvation belongs to the Lord. But it's also the implicit uh, emphasis from the first page of Scripture to the last. Man cannot save himself. He lacks the power, the ability. Man cannot even vindicate himself. He cannot stand before God to plead his case with the righteous judge of all the earth. And surprisingly, this is exactly what Job wanted. He asked for a chance to plead his case. He wanted an audience with the judge. In Job 31, 35, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job rightly recognizes the hand of the Lord in his suffering, and he wanted a chance to make a defense. He wanted to witness the accusation against him. And he wanted to plead his case. And he gets his wish. The Lord shows up in the whirlwind. He gets an audience with the creator and the judge. However, it is God who speaks, not Job. And the emphasis is Job cannot stand in God's presence. God bookends this in verses 9 and 14. Where he asks Job, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And then in verse 14, he says, If you do, then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. The linking of God's arm and salvation is common throughout the Old Testament. Repeatedly in his final sermon in Deuteronomy, Moses would remind the people, it was God's strong and powerful arm that saved you, that redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. And then verse in Psalms like Psalm 47 and 77 and 98, the people sing of the mighty arm of the Lord that secured their salvation. The arm of God is a salvation-working arm. And God basically asked Job, what can your arm do? Think about that as, as, when God asks the question. Job probably looks down at his arm. It may be the best object lesson in the history of the world. It's an arm covered in open sores. It's oozing. It's bleeding. The skin is literally falling off. 
It's bloody, it's infected. The muscles are weak, if they're even still intact. For Job, lifting his spoon from the bowl to his mouth was probably an impossible task. Job's arm cannot heal itself. It cannot fight for Job. It cannot save Job. It is a useless appendage. Even if his arm, though, was perfectly healthy, Job would still need help to have an arm that could justify him, that could save him. Job is again reminded of his powerlessness, that he is puny compared to the Lord. I've only had the privilege, I guess I'll say privilege, of standing before a judge one time in my life. It was to protest a ticket that I received when I was in college. In this particular case, I had a means to justify myself, to save myself, if you will, before the judge. So I stated my argument as respectfully as possible, and I saw my fine tossed out. Nevertheless, the experience was entirely intimidating. I give props to the lawyers here who stand in front of judges on a daily basis. The judge could very easily have just refused my complaint. He could have told me to pull out my wallet and write a check for the fine right there, right then. But the truth was, I still had an argument to make, and I proved it to be a valid one. Not Job. Or you, or me, or anyone else can say the same when it comes to standing before the judge of all the earth. We have no argument to make. The Lord makes this point almost as an afterthought as he's talking about Leviathan in, verse, in chapter 41. He throws it in there in verse 10 when he says no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. And then he makes a switch. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. For those familiar with the book of Romans, this is a very similar confession that Paul makes in Romans 11. After he has wonderfully unfolded the beautiful mystery of God's salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. And the obvious answer is, no one can stand before the judge of all the earth. No one can obligate God to do anything. Job knows this. For even as he voiced his complaints, he remained steadfast that a Redeemer would be provided for him. He confessed this in probably the most famous passage in this book. In Job 19.25 where he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. This was Job's confession of faith, even as he's complaining, even as he's voicing his struggles with God. And it's our confession of faith as well. On our own, we know we have no hope of standing before the Lord. We need one to stand before God on our behalf. We need salvation from a hand, from an arm that is strong enough to save. And praise the Lord that one has been provided. For as Paul says to Timothy, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus Christ is that redeemer that Job so confidently professed. The one who enables us to stand before God, 
He is the one who adorns us with majesty and dignity and glory and splendor through our union to him by faith. And so for those of you here this morning, still trying to save or to justify yourself in the sight of God, I implore you, I encourage you to stop. It is a fruitless and hopeless effort. It is a dead end. You are not strong enough. You are not good enough. No matter how good you think you are or how strong you think you are. It is like stepping into the ring with Leviathan. It's going to be a short fight. Instead, come to Jesus. He suffered, he bled, and he died so that you could be clothed in his perfect righteousness and be able to stand before the judge of all the earth. For those of you who are on the other side of struggling because you know you're not strong enough, you know you're not good enough, I implore you to be encouraged. You can stand confidently before God, not because of anything you've done or anything you haven't done. It's the same story. It's because of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is truly, perfectly, and eternally yours. He is your salvation. He is your vindication before the judge of all the earth. The arm of God is strong enough to save because only God can redeem sinners like you and like me. As we close, I'll admit that covering these six chapters in Job over the course of three weeks has felt a bit like drinking from a fire hose. We have only skimmed the surface of all there is to learn about God in these chapters, his ways, his characters, let alone the entire book. And so once again, I would encourage you over the course of today to go home and read all of chapters 40 and 41 and even throw 42 at the end in its entirety. Let the weight of God's incredible power and his greatness sink in. Let it encourage you. Let it comfort you. Let it even challenge you and rebuke you where needed. And in many ways, the overarching points of application are, are the same as they were last week. There's a call to humility and trust. Just as it was obvious that God's wisdom is so far beyond our own, it is equally obvious that God's power is so far beyond our own. At the beginning of Narnia, the newly created animals, as they come out upon the earth, they're filled with tons of questions. Some of them are silly. I think it's the crow asks if he makes the first joke. Some of them are even nonsensical. They hear words and just ask what it is. But one of them, when Aslan acknowledges that there is a new evil that has come into this world, they ask him, what is this evil? But even as they question and as they wonder and as they struggle, they look to the lion with full confidence, with full trust and full hope. He has a plan. He even says he does. And so they leave it in his massive and powerful paws. And we would be wise to do the same with our God. We will find rest when we leave all the unanswerable questions that we have, all the struggles that we have in his mighty hands.
We tend to obsess over having all the answers or fixing all the problems. The reality of Job is he gets no answers as to why he is suffering, as to why he has lost everything. He gets no special power to overcome what he's suffering from. Instead, he gets God coming, telling Job about himself, and then encouraging him to leave it all there. Leave it with God. May we do the same. Hand everything, your sufferings, your frustrations, your sicknesses, your struggles, your questions, leave it all into the hands of the one who's powerful enough to hold it, to control it, to work it for his good pleasure. Trust in him. Rest in him. See him working even in the hardest of trials in the darkest of days. God alone holds the power over all his creation. May we learn to trust in him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. You are the almighty, the all-powerful, the great, even the mysterious God. You are strong enough to do all that we can't. May we first come and acknowledge that reality. We are weak. We are impotent. We are puny. And God, may that not lead us to despair, to hopelessness, but may that lead us to look to you. The one who gives us strength. The one who has saved us by your son. The one who is working all things for your purposes. And may you give us hope and trust in you that that is indeed what you are doing. Even in days when it's hard, even in days when there is struggle, when the questions are heavy. Give us trust. Give us comfort by your spirit. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.